Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In today's episode, we will speak about how China has seemingly co-opted the multilateral system. Originally designed to protect against great power competition, the United Nations and other international institutions now just as frequently seem to be theaters to promote it. To discuss this, we're proud to introduce Ambassador Kelly Curry, who served as the Deputy Permanent Representative to the UN and the UN Representative to ECOSOC, as well as Morgan Vigna, who is the former Chief of Staff to U.S. Perm Rep to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks So I just want to start by better understanding, um, maybe Morgan, we'll start with you. When, when you were at the United Nations, what was the way in which you saw sort of China engaging and using the institution to promote its own interests? And how did that measure up against how the United States was using our role at the United Nations? Today, um, China pursues its own national interests through the UN multilateral system. Um, in order for China to be strong at home, it has to be strong abroad. Um, and it projects, it uses the United Nations to project its own norms um, and principles and really seeks to change the way the international community's norms, change the international community's norms and values, right? Um, it does this through a multitude of ways. Um, I would note that, uh, you know, I think Kelly can talk more about the, the, the resolutions that China pursued and, and how they sought to um, change the language within those resolutions to shape the way the international community thinks about uh, certain issues, whether they be human rights or economic or social issues or even peacekeeping, right? Um, in other ways, China uses um, pers the personnel system, right? It seeks to get more and more of its personnel into senior level positions, um, but also its rank and file as well. Um, the China does not use, excuse me, the United States does not use U.S. US personnel in the U.N. system like China does. Mm -hmm. China expects its personnel to toe the party line, CCP line. Um, the United States expects all U.N. personnel, including its own citizens, to be impartial, right? As a matter of fact, U.N. personnel have to take an oath of office, essentially, upon coming to service. Um, China does, does not play by the rules in that respect. Um, I would also note that China's uh, contributions to the UN system, though far below, far below the United States, I think that's important to note, um, have increased in recent years. Um, and I think that's something that we can sort of d d dive into a little bit more. And, and Kelly, you obviously, you dealt directly with Chinese officials and diplomats at the United Nations. So how would you describe their objectives within the UN system? Well, I think that there's been a dramatic shift over the past 10 years, I would say, um, China has always seen the the UN the US led um, system the international system with suspicion um, going back to the beginning of the People's Republic of China, and 
It, it was, so they took a more defensive approach, I would say, until about 2013, when when Xi Jinping came into power as um, as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and the party state. And I think that the key thing for people to understand, kind of looking at this at the big picture level, is that in the way that the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping in particular, who was a really like you know, he's a real homer for the CCP. Like he really believes in scientific materialism and the version of Marxist-Leninism that he has taken on board. And he's a he's a true believer in these things and has um, accomplished a pretty dramatic feat of um, consolidating power around himself in, in terms of lead, being the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. Um, and so I think that for him... He then wanted to move, and and he saw that he sees the UN not just as a threat to to the Chinese Communist Party, which is how um, many of his predecessors saw it in terms of the values and norms that were in, incorporated in the UN system, or something that can be used to advance China's um, aims. He actually sees the normative framework itself as one of the biggest threats to the Chinese Communist Party because it is rooted in these um, these norms that are are really more suited to what I would call Western, but not necessarily Western, more of the the, the U.S. and um, and European and democratic values um, of of human rights. And and a, and a sense of of popular sovereignty that that is more legitimate in a way than authoritarianism, and so what has happened over the past ten years in particular is that China has gone from being on defensive at the UN and trying to defend their narrow interests um, to being on offense and trying to basically rewire the international system in ways that are to that make it more. Um, useful to China, safer space, and then more useful. They've gone from, you know, we want to make the the international system safe for China and comfortable, and now they want to weaponize it just as they've weaponized other aspects of whether it's economic cooperation or um, their supply chain. So it's it's really about um, how you think about these institutions, and China thinks about them, in a, or the CCP, I should say, and, and Xi Jinping in particular, think about them in very instrumental ways. And they're, you know that's okay, because a lot of other countries think about the UN as very, in very instrumental ways. But when you strip out the normative framework, or you rewire the normative framework of these institutions, it becomes very questionable what, what they're being, what they're instruments of. If they're instruments um, that are that are that are devoid of any normative framework, then they can be very dangerous instruments and very repressive instruments. And I think that that's where we've kind of missed missed the boat um, in a way because when by we expected, I think Beijing and China and the CCP to come in and be socialized by these institutions, and there used to be this, you know. We the, the, that their engagement with these institutions would change China and make China a more liberal, more open place. That clearly has not happened, just as that has not happened with trade and other forms of engagement. But there was this real belief that by social that by bringing China into these institutions, we would socialize them, and the opposite has happened. In fact, 
Has, has that strategy ever worked? Because I think looking at sort of the globe today, that's something that, you know, the Biden administration, in some respects, they, you know, this idea of social, bringing Iran more into the system and trying to socialize them into system, this idea of socializing China into the system. is Are there any examples where that has been sort of an effective strategy? I think that it works with countries like South Korea and Taiwan, where they're U.S. security partners, and we can, you know, call the tune and say, look, we're going to stop supporting you if you don't start to democratize and start allowing freedom and human rights in your country. We can do that. But with countries that are, you know, are are sworn enemies and, and the two countries that you've named, and I would throw Russia in there, too, and North Korea, I don't think that trying to socialize them is going to work. They don't want to be socialized. They don't, you know, that they they recognize the threat that these that that the normative framework in particular, the idea of human rights attaching at the individual level, that human rights are not something that states can negotiate with one another, but rather they belong intrinsically to every human being. And every human being is entitled to be treated with dignity and respect and and has a birthright of freedom. These ideas are anathema to um, particularly to communists um, and totalizing authoritarian regimes. Um, and I would say that Iran is another kind of totalizing authoritarian regime because their ideology is a totalizing one. And I think that you, when you have those kinds of regimes, you can't socialize them through, you know, especially not through weak sauce UN institutions. So I'd love to hear from both of you sort of how what you've seen, what successes you've seen China making in this space. You both mentioned that they're trying to sort of reshape the UN system to suit their, both to undermine American interests and to advance their own interests. What are some of the key successes that you would point to um, that Beijing has had in the UN space? Sure. So I'll just note, um, you know, when Kelly and I were up at the the mission, um, one of my portfolios was personnel and, and appointments. And I saw China make significant gains um, and and pursue a very aggressive approach to get their people in positions of, of influence. Um, I'll note here that, you know, in 2001, uh, the UN employed 888 Chinese nationals. In uh, 2021, it employed 1,400, over 1,400. That's a 66% increase, right? In addition to that, between 2015 and 2021, uh, China held how many positions? I think it was four or five, but four UN specialized agencies, FAO, ITU, um, ICAO, um, and UNIDO. Um, and they did make a huge play for, for WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. The United States under the Trump administration was able to counter that. Um, China wanted actually a Singaporean and a Chinese ally of theirs to, to get the position we were able to, to so they either try to get their own nationals in positions of influence, or they try to put up um, proxies um, to, to do so. And it's very frustrating because particularly the United States will often get, for positions that are not elected, for appointments, uh, the United States will, will often get uh, to weigh in and provide their thoughts on various candidates. Um, but in recent years, China's had significant success and being able to um, to move the secretariat, specifically the secretary general, on a direction that's favorable to them. Um, so I, I think on, on the personnel piece in particular, that's that's where they've made a lot of gains. And is it is it that they're very good at it, or is it more that we're kind of asleep at the wheel? So, so the thing is that China's, as to Kelly's earlier point, 
is that China has become more aggressive in the past 10 years at the United Nations, and they have pursued very vigorously these national interests at the UN system. The United States, we don't traditionally do that too often. And I would say under Ambassador Haley, that it was an extreme exception. Um, but too often, I find that um, USUN perm reps go along to get along, and they want to preserve the status quo, right? Make minor changes to UN Security Council resolutions when there are mandate renewals. Really just try not to rock the boat too much and pursue a sort of a kumbaya approach, right? Um, Ambassador Haley threw that playbook out the window. Um, and so generally speaking, the United States has not pursued our national interests in the same way that China has. And I think that is an this is what I mean by instrumentalizing these institutions. And I'll give you, um, uh, well, I want to follow up on this elections and, and appointments, this senior appointments um, issue, because what they've done is on elections, like we don't even tell people who we're voting for most of the time. And they have weaponized elections. They, they are used, they bribe people. Uh, they literally bribe people. It's not even a joke. They either bribe them in Capitol or at the UN and there's been no consequence to it until and unless the UN starts to actually enforce the rules and and starts to actually do something about their their behavior that is completely out of balance. It's a violation of UN procedures. It's a violent violation of like everything at the UN. But they get away with it, and nobody. And, and again, this I think goes to this problem with the Secretariat. And the Secretariat is the group of people that works around the Secretary General, right? And they've co-opted this particular secretary general in a way that is really quite shocking. You will notice that he doesn't say anything at all about the human rights violations in China, even the fact that there is an ongoing genocide in China. It's no remark from him. There was a careful effort, and this gets to the co-optation of institutions through proxies with the WHO during COVID. Nobody blamed China. Everything that was done to undermine the investigation into the origins of COVID and to avoid anybody pointing any fingers at China during the whole pandemic um, in the UN system was led by a signal that went down from the Secretary General. And it was everything from that, from you know, covering, helping China cover up a pandemic that killed you know, millions of people, to covering up a genocide, to literally blocking people who are critics of China from entering the UN grounds. And Morgan will remember this fun instance where Beijing, literally their mission in New York, blocked a Uyghur, um, a Uyghur German citizen. He's a German citizen with a 10-year multi-entry visa into the United States because they told the, the UN that he was um, a terrorist and to block him from entering. And our mission, our mission literally had to go to war with the Secretary General's office to get this guy to be able to enter the UN grounds. And it, it's just like the degree to which they've warped the secretary general's office. And I, you know, you can, everybody here, I think, can put two and two together and, and come up with the right sum. But this problem has been a really, this, this really um, started in 2016 when China made a big pledge that they were going to give a billion dollars to the UN. Well, China likes to give, Xi Jinping came to the UN, gave a big pledge, I'm going to give, a, China's going to give a billion dollars in voluntary funding. What that billion dollars actually turned into was $200 million over 10 years, starting in 2016. Um, and 20, so it's $20 million a year. 
this is typical. They make big pledges and then the numbers that actually come in are much smaller, but they dangle the money out there. And this is how they warp these agencies and warp these institutions inside, not just the UN, but in governments around the world with the Belt and Road. And so they've they basically bribed the secretary general. Again, I know that's a strong word, but I think it's the right one here by saying, all right, here's your $20 million a year. 10 million of it goes directly to you to do whatever you want with. And you have to understand the secretary general doesn't have a lot of walking around money. The budget's not set up that way. Morgan can go into more detail about this. So $10 million a year for him to pursue his pet projects is a lot. And it's a lot of flexible money for him. And there's no strings attached to it at all. And there's no accountability around it. It's literally him and the Chinese government deciding how it gets spent. And that's it. It's this UN yeah. Peace and Development Fund is what it's called. Yeah. And then the other 10 million goes to complete a project that is very important to the Chinese, which is the conflation of the Belt and Road Initiative with the Sustainable De Development Goals. They've got the Secretary General at a report rhetorical level agreeing to do this. They've got the department that's in charge of implementing the sustainable development goals, getting $10 million a year, literally just to converge Belt and Road and sustainable development goal, goals. And now China is saying the Belt and Road is our gift to the UN. They are literally making their project to export excess domestic capacity into wrapping it up with a your bow and saying, here, this is our big voluntary contribution to the UN. I mean, it's just mind blowing what they've, and everybody at the UN's like, yay, great, this is awesome. And we're like, yeah, no, this is terrible. Like, what is happening here? And so, this is what the, but when they are warping these institutions and literally turning them inside out, this is what we're talking about. How is it that they, now, on the cheap, like on the cheap? Well, and, and this is the, this is the, the sort of obvious next question, which is, the UN is not cheap for us. Nope. I mean, we're by far the largest donor um, to the United Nations, and there's been a lot of criticism that that financial contribution doesn't really correlate to the UN fighting for American interests or priorities. Yes. Um, and so my question is, why not? So it's like, what, what can or should we be doing with our financial contributions? How is China able to move the entire system in a way that... Um, takes up far less money than it does for us. Like, why does our money not kind of bias anything? Right. So, Tara, I think you hit on a really good point because a lot of people in this town um, and in New York will make the argument that we have to give more. The United States has to be give more. We have to pay our dues on time because if not, China will fill that space. That is false. Patently false. The United States contributed $18.1 billion in voluntary and assessed contributions last year. China, it was... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, actually, no, it was, it was below that. It's, I think Germany and then Japan's. No, you know, just one. Yeah, like, three. Yeah. Three. yeah. Like, um, granted, that is 10 times more than what it was really providing back in 2010. Right. So I, I, I think, yes, China has made strides, but we really need to put this in perspective here um, and take a hard look at what that $18.1 billion is going towards. I mean, UNRWA, for example, under the under the Trump administration and with Ambassador Haley, she was one of she was a leader in cutting U.S. funding to UNRWA. Well, guess what? Now the United States provides a third of that budget. So, and and what has it gotten towards? Terrorists hiding rockets in UNRWA schools, in hospitals, right? So, I think we need to take a very hard look at what we're actually getting for our money here, and the actual value that is contributing to the people that need it most. Mm, yeah. Um, one key area that uh, 
China's influence was felt is, um, you know, we've talked a bit about the Secretariat. I definitely want to talk about the Human Rights Council at some point as well, but I want to pivot to um, another UN body, which is the World Health Organization. And I think as it related to COVID and the World Health Organization immediately buying China's narrative uh, in a way that fundamentally affected the the lives and livelihood of many countries around the world is, 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 is very, very telling. Um, and so I guess my my question here is um, how specifically as it relates to the WHO, how did the CCP manage to co-opt it so effectively? And, and more importantly, what is the lesson that you think we in Washington should be learning from this as it relates to if there are any future pandemics, either originating from China or not? Well, I think part of it was having, um, first of all, China is all over Ethiopia, like white on rice to is maybe a very not analogy <laughs> but um it's uh you know this is they are a major investor in the ethiopian ethiopian government where the, the head of the w wto who sorry where the head of the who dr tedros is from he's he was a former ethiopian health minister and an official in the ethiopian uh ruling party and China has been has spent a lot of money, time, and resources to cultivate Ethiopia as a key ally, um, and so they were very happy to support him um, in coming in. Uh, one thing you may also want to know about Dr. Tedros is that he uh, is the the party that he was part of in Ethiopia is a Marxist party. It's a revolutionary party, so um, China has ties going back to many of these. Um, colonial, you know, uh, post-colonial transition parties, these revolutionary parties that are now in power in countries around the world, and especially in Africa, where they've been able to play on those old revolutionary anti-colonial ties throughout the G77. And that is where they really, like, really push their agenda with these elected positions and with you know they they lash them they lash themselves up to the developing countries in the G77, which is actually 135 countries, which makes them a majority of the UN. So they're and and of the World Health Assembly and all of these other organizations. So they're able to really leverage these this narrative that China is part of the developing world, that China is a friend to these you know post-colonial um, countries and their liberation struggles. And there's some truth to it, but it hasn't been true for decades. And let's be very clear, mostly what China wants to do is exploit these countries. But I think that in the specific case of Tedros, it goes back to that. And then it's a lot of use of very targeted um, voluntary contributions to pay for the priorities of individual leaders in these organizations. They, they're very, very narrow cast with how they spend money. They're very smart about it, right? They don't just write a check to a, you know, UNHCR and say, go, go save refugee lives like we do. They treat, they're like, okay, what, how can we leverage our contribution to get something from either the leadership of this organization or something for China out of it? And that's how they think about all of this. They don't, it's not a global public good for them. It's a, it's a, a system that they can figure out how to work and instrumentalize. And I think even with the developed countries too, I mean, China and, well, I should say, that's by CCP. CCP will actually use business deals and hold it over the heads of developed countries, in particular our European partners, and essentially hold them hostage, ensuring that they provide um, 
the votes that are favorable to to them um, in international institutions. Or kill stuff behind the scenes, like what happened with COVID. I mean, you saw what happened to the Australians after they demanded a credible um, investigation. And China went after them with extreme economic coercion. So they, they go from all angles, right? They're coming at the WHO and basically, you know, using their leverage over Dr. Tedros and the relationship that they have. You know, Tedros is an old friend. They bring him to China. He, you know, they tell him, no, no, everything's fine. They believe he believes them or at least, you know, knows it's in his interest to go back to Geneva and say, yes, everything's fine. Um, despite the history there. And um, then then they when somebody does call them out and say, you know, you, we need a credible accounting here. They um, th they punish them severely. I mean, the Australians really were were hit hard by by the economic coercion that China levied in them. And so who else is going to you know, stand up and, and take that hit. It's really difficult. And especially if you don't have the United States saying, you know what, we've got Australia's back. We will buy all of your, you know, all of your wine. We will buy whatever products China was going to buy. Um, we and your allies will do this just like we did with Japan on the Fukushima. But you saw this again with Fukushima and Japan recently where, you know, the Chinese have tried to weaponize the Fukushima discharge. The UN agencies that regulate these things initially said there's no danger here, but then the Chinese managed to weaponize, you know, everything. And Japan su suddenly was having to back off and backtrack. And you know, it was it's really, they are not afraid to play hardball in ways that, and, and it, they don't pay a price for it. And that's the that's the problem is that there's no consequences when they do this stuff, but it's really norm-breaking behavior. If we were to behave this way at the United Nations, people would lose their minds. So there's sort of three kind of options that I'm I'm hearing out of this and in previous conversations, which is number one, um, that there needs to be some kind of a reform, um, or number two, you've heard some people say, well, we should just leave. What whatever that is, whether it's the UN as a whole, whether it's the Human Rights Council, which the the US did leave under Ambassador Healy, we also left in the Trump administration, the the World Health Organization. Um, and then the third thing is, um, and it's one that people don't talk about because it's very unsavory, but it's, you know, using sort of the same tactics that China's been using, right? So so of those things, like, what do you think is the way to correct for this if there's a way to correct for this at all? Sure. So I think we need to be a lot more strategic with how we use the United Nations, not necessarily to say we need to play like China plays, Right. Don't necessarily think we need to do that, but I think there are lessons learned that we can take from China's experience in the UN system, um, and and really find ways to pursue our own interests, right? Um, personnel, for example, uh, I keep going back to personnel because it's a, an area in which China's had significant success. I mean, the the uh, International Organizations Bureau and State Department now has an office specifically focused on U.S. personnel. It's very nascent; hasn't made a lot of progress. But, you know, it did get congressional funding to get stood up. Um, and I think it's it's a step in the right direction. We're, we are so far from where we need to be, though, that we if we are truly going to uh, make strides and enhance our influence within the multilateral system and specifically nations, then, then we need to be putting more resources. And not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean more money. But we just need to be prioritizing it in a different way. I mean, I do think there's a larger conversation to be had about 
the UN's effectiveness writ large and whether or not um, it is an organization that we even need to to participate in. I mean, take a look. I mean, out of all of the P5 members that actually attended high level week this year, Biden, he was the only head of state to attend. I think you're starting to see the United Nations become much more of a place where developing countries um, see uh, as, as a form which developing country, countries can actually achieve something, right? So generally speaking, yes, we do need to be taking a, a, a more focused approach when it comes to how we pursue our interests at the United Nations and where we don't have interests. We need to consider scaling those back, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think UNRWA is, is a really good example. The UN Human Rights Council um, was is, is another one. I think it's sort of the first one. Um, but also, you taking a look at other organizations. I mean, why we joined UNESCO? How that didn't undermine our own policy that's been on the books for thirty years? I mean, it, that's that's a shame, right? So uh, there there is a need to sort of take a step back and reevaluate our approach to the UN system. Yeah, I would agree that we need to definitely be much more strategic. I think that, you know, and Morgan can correct or validate as she sees fit. But, you know, most of the time when the UN makes an appeal for humanitarian assistance or whatever, the United States just automatically signs up and gives 22 percent right off the top. And I I think that, you know, we need to I I think that it's a mistake for the UN. They take when you to go back to your earlier question. One of the reasons why China gets so much more bang for their buck is because they take our bucks for granted. And I think it's especially uh, true on the voluntary side. Um, you know, we withhold, a, there's a lot of talk about the assessed contributions. And, um, you know, we can talk about what, what, how we should deal with our assessed contributions and our assessments. But the bigger challenge and where most of the money is, our, assess, our, our assessed contribution is a fraction of what we give. And our voluntary contributions is really, really dwarf China. But we don't, you know, again, we don't do that. We just see these as global public goods and things that we do for the global, global commons. And we don't think, okay, is this really necessary? And is this really actually helping solve the problem in front of us? And so I think that really trying to to look at across the board at what we're doing is 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 not only, you know, a good exercise from a fiscal and strategic point of view, but I think we're now at the point where it's an emergency that we're now actually actively funding organizations that are helping China pursue its interests. And it's, you know, we can't keep doing that. That's just, that's not, <laughs> that's insane, right? And so I think that we need to really be thinking like, what is the value proposition for us? And not in the same kind of mercenary utilitarian way that the, that Beijing looks at it, but more in like, what are we getting? How is this helping to pursue a U.S. interest? How does this help us to accomplish a goal that we're not accomplishing through bilateral or minilateral or alliance-based pro- um, projects or activities that we're doing? And really think about that. And then when we do give money, we've got to hold these agencies accountable. And that's a big part of it. We've got to hold the system accountable. We've got to hold the Secretary General accountable. We've got to hold the agencies and the staff accountable for things, whether it's preventing sexual exploitation and abuse or using the money wisely and not wasting it on on nonsense or dealing with problems of corruption and other things. We've got to see accountability built back into the system because the Chinese um, system does not want accountability at the UN. They want it to continue to be a corrupt place with lots of little hidey holes where they can go in and take advantage of things and do little things in the dark because it's a big mess. 
we need to, you know, also enforce some discipline. Stop doing stuff that, you know, we're still doing what, the 18th resolution on the decade of the family farmer? Like, why? Why do we? And then the stuff has budgetary implications attached to it. Like, one of the great things that Morgan and her team did that was really critical was like everything, like everybody knew when we were coming into negotiations, what is the PBI? What is the, what is the budgetary implication of this? Do we have, is there a price tag attached to it? What is it? If it has one, then you got to explain to us why we should be spending a thin dime on this. And if it, you know, if we can get rid of it, we're going to get rid of it. And so if you want to go and do nonsense things, fine, but we're not going to attach any money to it and you're not going to get any money from us for it. I think they're really like fighting the system, but it takes a lot of effort and you're right. You know, it's not just the PRs, it's the whole mission in some respects that goes up there and it's hard you know, being the person going around telling everybody to eat their vegetables all day. It's no fun being the, like the, you know, it isn't. And so it's, it's, it's hard being the disciplinarian at an incredibly undisciplined organization that's used to getting its way and has everybody thinking that it's some sort of, you know, benevolent, benign entity. Yeah. One thing I'll just add to that is that, look, the United States pays more than 185 member states combined, right? That is that is business malpractice on behalf of the United Nations. Yep. What business can you is out there that has one sole in, like one sole investor? Right? They go under. Yeah. Um, and the United States, as it is, contributes about twenty five percent to the UN peacekeeping budget. Again, this is not a sustainable yep. approach um, for the UN, and so I think they need to start so there are, stop their over reliance on the United States because, quite frankly, there is zero guarantee. And that money is going to be there in the long term. But is it, I mean, what you're describing, both of you, is um, obviously very complicated. Um, you know, we have to sort of rethink our entire way of engaging with the United Nations. There's an argument from many, often conservatives, that are sort of like, you know, what's even the point of it? Like, why are we, why bother go through all those steps? I mean, ultimately, the United Nations was created for a variety of purposes. One was to help with strategic cooperation, which we've seen declining over the years. The second was to help prevent great power competition. We have a war in the Middle East. We have a war in Europe, and we probably will see a war in the Indo-Pacific. So, so uh, you know, negative marks on on that. And then another reason was human rights, right? And we're seeing the Human Rights Council being it overtaken completely by human rights violators. Um, you know, we we recently celebrated here in the United States uh, the the I think year anniversary of the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. Uh, we have declared it a genocide, but obviously, as you mentioned before, the UN has done nothing on what is sort of the uh, you know the most contemporary parallel to the Holocaust that that we have seen. Um, so, what's the point? Well, it is a valid question. I think we need to be asking ourselves that if it's not going to perform, you know, who would keep who would keep throwing good money after bad on something that fails across the board? And I think that there there are real questions. And I think it's not just us that are asking these questions. I'll tell you one of the most interesting, you know, starters for a conversation that I would have with developing countries is I would go to them and be like, look, you actually need this place to work for you. Like the United States does not need the UN to provide it with economic development. It doesn't need it to provide us with with national security. And it doesn't need us. It, we don't need the UN to, pr to protect our human rights in this country. We are fully capable of doing all three of those things, which are the three main pillars of the United Nations system, right? But your country 
you're a conflict-affected country. You've got development challenges. You've got human rights challenges. You actually need this place to work. How's it going? Is it working for you? And does all of this stuff that the Chinese are doing, does that make it better and more effective for you or less? And every time you add another nonsense resolution in here or do something, you know, that wastes everybody's time and creates more bureaucracy, how does that make this place more effective for you? Now, from a U.S. perspective, we, you know, we've used the U.N. to deal with problems that we don't have the, the level of interest or bandwidth or whatever, like that, you know, there's always this saying that if we didn't have the UN, we'd have to have a lot more, you know, USAID would have to be 10 times bigger, blah, 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 blah. I don't know that any of that is true. I think it's a proposition we ought to start to stress test a little bit more because if you look at, you know, whether it's Ukraine or, or other examples where the UN has utterly failed to be effective, um, I think that you, you see that we can be more effective either with our allies who we're like-minded with or in many lateral groupings, you also see regional groupings coming and starting to solve their own problems in ways and the UN heavily relying on the African Union and other regional organizations to actually deal with problems that can't get dealt with in the UN context. And so I think that there is a valid question of like, what is it doing? And I always was a back to basics girl at the UN. I'm like, can we just get back to the basics? Like, can we like talk about the three pillars and what we're doing to advance them and whether anything we're doing right now is doing that. And if it's not doing that, then why are we doing it? And should we be doing it? And so I think that there's a real argument to be made that there is a role for a leaner, smaller UN, but that there's, it needs radical surgery right now. Yeah, no, I largely agree with that, Kelly. I, I, w I would add that there are some specialized and technical agencies and, and bodies uh, humanitarian bodies, such as the World Food Program of the United Nations, that do actually provide utility, right? The International Civil Aviation Organization, Universal Postal Telecommunications. These are technical bodies that actually serve a purpose and uh, I, I think are largely benevolent, right? Well, um, except when the Chinese are running Except when the Chinese <laughs> are running them, right? Um, and so that's, that's the kicker though, is, is that's, I, they, that's why the personnel issue is, yes, is so yeah. important, right? Because these are important agencies and they do have value generally speaking, but, um, but when they're run by the Chinese, they change the international norms and standards, which are not favorable to frankly much anyone except China. <laughs> um, but I mean, also, I mean, take a look at world, the world food program. Right. The United States is the World Food Program would not exist if it were not for the United States. It is run by an American, right? I would say, you know, something similar with UNICEF. I mean, UNICEF, I mean, Kelly, you would know, I mean, went down some some bad places when it when it came to Chinese influence. Yeah. But nevertheless, this is an important organization. And when you're providing food and shots in arms to 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 kids that, you know, quite frankly, you know, would have would die of malaria. Um, or some other, you know, horrible tropical disease. I think this this is the value of the UN system, and we should absolutely continue to support these organizations where appropriate. But I, I think when it comes to the many other bodies, such as Human Rights Council, such as UNESCO, you need others. We need to take a sort of a harder look at what. What do we actually get out of this? Yeah. And so uh, focusing on that, the, the Human Rights Council, obviously, both of you 
um, were uh, were heavily involved when the United States decided that we were withdrawing from the Human Rights Council. So, um, can you share a little bit about the sort of um, the the efforts to try to reform that and sort of this the ultimate decision to to leave, which of course the Biden administration uh, has reversed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh... It was a really frustrating experience for me because I actually, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer by training. I've spent most of my career working on human rights issues on the ground um, at the grassroots level. And I've had my own struggles with the human rights um, previous the commission and was actually fully supportive when the Bush administration agreed not to join the council in the first place. I was at the Bush administration, I was in the Bush administration at that time and working for um, Undersecretary Dobryansky and was very supportive because the when when we went from the commission to the council, there was an ef- there was an effort to try to fix some of the pathologies that affected the commission um, in terms of both its uh, excessive um, agenda items and crit- criticism of Israel that it just seemed, you know, the count, the Human Rights Commission before it and the council now are just obsessed with criticizing Israel and spending a disproportionate amount of their time on Israel um, and on the Israel-Palestinian issue. Um, the other issue was how to hold perpetrators accountable and actually get accountability for perpetrators, include whether it was Beijing and, and the Chinese Communist Party or others. Um, and the commission had been spectacularly ineffective. The council basically retained all of those same pathologies as it moved forward and didn't do anything to keep perpetrators off of the council. There's no membership standard other than being a member of the UN and getting elected by popular vote in their, you know, and so that's it. And anybody, and so now you still have, as as Morgan and, and you have noted, you have the council just infested with the, the the perpetrators and and so you can't get things done on a human rights council that is um, infested with perpetrators and when it does get stuff done it's so watered down and it's so ineffective um I think that what what we tried to do was set some standards tried to resolve some of these issues in a way that was more favorable toward human rights not towards the United States but toward the cause of human rights like that was the lodestar for us was like what is going to serve the cause of human rights? And we got resistance, not just from our own allies, which was the worst that we, you know, of course we expected to get lots of resistance from the perpetrator countries, from the countries with terrible rights records, but our own allies were so adamantly opposed to doing anything, but they didn't want us to leave. And we're like, okay, you understand that this is a problem. Like if you're not going to help us fix it, then you can't be upset that we're going to leave because you know the problem. They would tell us privately, yes, we're aware it's got all these problems. We know it's got all these problems, but you know, it'll just be worse if you leave. And we're like, how would it be worse? Right now, all you do is hide behind us. When we take a stand, you either abstain or vote no on stuff because you know that we will, you know, keep it from being done by um, by consensus. That's exactly what happened on a China human rights resolution on win-win cooperation on human rights is, and this is what tipped me over the edge where I was just like, you know what, we're done. After spending, having hundreds of meetings and countless hours trying to explain to people why we needed to reform the Human Rights Council so that the United States could stay in it, I watched us spend weeks and, and, and trying to defeat a Chinese resolution in the Human Rights Council that basically undermined the entire idea of human rights by proclaiming 
that the, the council was going to work on win-win cooperation basis. And the, the, and it, I don't even know why people couldn't understand that this meant that human rights were now negotiable by states. They no longer attach at the individual level. This is now something that states can negotiate with each other and decide which rights they're going to uphold and which ones they're going to ignore. And telling our closest allies, Canada, Australia, the UK, you know, all of the European countries, all the countries that claim to be great champions of human rights, that you really need to help us lobby against this resolution. We need to defeat this resolution. This will be a cancer inside the human rights system if you allow it to pass. Nobody voted with us. We were the only country that voted no on that resolution in in the spring of 2018. 17 countries abstained, but we were the only one that voted against it. If we hadn't voted against it, it would have passed. Now, when the Chinese tried to bring it up again a few years later after we were out of the council, the Europeans did step up and they were able to block, they voted against it. And so you had a you know big chunk of the council voting against it and the Chinese pulled it back because they didn't want it, want it to be close. But if those 17 countries had come out and said, yeah, we're going to vote against it with you, China probably would have withdrawn it because they don't like to lose close. They don't, mm-hmm. if they can control it, they won't do that. They don't like to be isolated and they don't like to you know see that level of resistance to what they're doing and so it really was a huge problem for me and such a like clarifying moment for me that like these people will hide behind our skirt if we stay here and if we leave it will actually force them to have to deal with the problems instead of just making us the bad guy all the time and so for me that was why it was important for us to leave and to be out and to pull back um, I, I think that we then, you know, found ways to strategically engage in Geneva on human rights. It didn't mean that we stopped engaging on human rights at all, just because we weren't on the council. We still did a lot of other stuff, including in Geneva, including holding the first side events in Geneva on the Uyghur genocide sponsored by a permanent mission. And, you know, where I went and, and had Uyghurs testify about what was happening on the genocide and China flipped out and accused us of all kinds of things, including, you know, we have no right to say anything about human rights because we're not on the Human Rights Council. I'm like, yeah, since when does that mean anything? I mean, it just became like so ridiculous and it's become so inverted to the purpose that that it's meant to to have. And you see this, but the, the oh my gosh, what was the thing they did during COVID with the, the anti-racism stuff? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's like, really? It was crazy crazy the stuff that they focus on and make into like the human rights crisis of the day and then completely ignore what's happening in china period full stop no no i mean i I think there is a common misperception that um the united states just left the un human rights council without trying to actually fix it that is incorrect we spent a year Mm -hmm. trying to fix that organization with some pretty basic stuff when to make transparency in voting, getting rid of agenda item seven that focuses solely on Israel, and then really developing some baseline standards. I mean, as it is right now, the baseline standard for kicking a member off the council is Russian occupation or attended Russia, Russian uh, aggression against a sovereign state, right? So, I mean, I think that that's, and by the way, Russia left before it could be formally kicked off. So, I think that the DRC is kicked off for like massive human rights violations. There's that one like you really have to like do some right. out 
outrageous, like, like destroy your own country kind of stuff. Exactly. To and so, I mean, bottom line, this was pretty obvious. These were pretty obvious reforms that we were pursuing. And even the very human rights, the, the, the same human rights groups mm. that condemn the council and condemn atrocities, we were getting heat from them for trying to reform the council. They wrote a letter to all of our allies denouncing our efforts at reform. It was shocking. Like 50 human rights groups, including the big ones, like wrote this letter to all of our allied missions saying, do not support these things. Again, we're talking about holding a, a, a forum that is chaired by the president of the General Assembly instead of instead of convened by NGOs. That really made them mad mm -hmm. that we wanted the, the candidate forum for the Human Rights Council to be convened by the president of the General Assembly, making it a formal UN event and making it a requirement for candidature. Mm -hmm. And instead of, they really wanted it to just be an NGO sponsored event. And that was like, that made them mad. And like, Shivar, like, really? This is your, like, I mean, it was insane, some of the stuff that happened. But China just sits there and like laughs at us doing these things. And they, because they could take advantage of the system and they can work it like a, you know, like, like a puppet master. They're just able to do whatever they want with it. And there's, there's just no consequences. So what do you think? I know that there's also, I mean, we've been spending most of our time talking about the United Nations. There's also this effort that China has done uh, to try to kind of create multilateral institutions of its own, right? So one is the is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Of course, there are regional bodies as well. Um, there's the um, you know the Organization of American States, for example, um, which which we're a part of. Um, so I just wonder, you know, how effective do you think um, China's efforts to sort of create these separate multilateral institutions will be, um, you know, in the in the near future? Well, if you look at things like the BRICS and a Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And I think that it's very hard to say. SCO has really just become like a little dictator's club, right? I mean, they just meet and they do whatever. I, I don't see a lot of activity. BRICS, uh, BRICS is similar in that the reason for these these, that, that grouping is is still very unclear, like why it even exists. It was literally a term coined by like a Goldman Sachs analyst or something like that's not the basis for an effective um, multilateral organization. Let's be very clear. Um, so I think that, but I think China is trying to figure out how they can use their weight and their, both their convening power and their economic um, power to pull to to pull like-minded countries together that is something that they are very clearly doing i think that things more things like the uh, the belt and road forum or as i like to call it the barf are the things that are actually where you need to be looking at, at the barf and the fact that the secretary general goes to the barf every time being it and lots of you know but but even there, it's gone from they've gone from having you know dozens and dozens or maybe even a hundred heads of state showing up to I think only like twenty this last time. So it's it's I think that they're not very. The problem is that when you do instrumentalize these organizations as nakedly and blatantly as they do, other countries will come out of interest or, you know, deference or because they don't want to upset people. But at the end of the day, they're like, what are we getting out of this? Like, what's in this for us? And if they're not actually seeing any benefit or value, they're going to kind of stop 
like showing up just for just to stroke Xi Jinping's ego. That's like not a thing. My my last question for both of you is, you know, obviously the Biden administration has um, spoken a lot about China um, and and uh, had some very strong rhetoric as it relates to countering Chinese Communist Party influence. Um, have they had any successes in terms of the United Nations system? Have you seen the Biden administration doing any kind of pushback? And if if not, or if so, what are the additional things that you think they should be doing in particular in countering China within the, the UN system? They came in and wasted all the leverage we gave them, frankly. I mean, that's what makes me the most angry. It's like, we, you don't agree with how the previous administration did things fine, whatever, you want to do things differently. But acknowledge that there was leverage there, that if you're going to go back to the Human Rights Council, use that to try to solve some of the problems. Like, we want to come back, but could you guys, like, maybe do a couple things to fix problems here? Same with WHO. Same with all of these, with UNESCO, at least if you're going to go back UNRWA, like all of these agencies that they just came back in with no conditionality at all, like that's just bad negotiating. That's just dumb. You got leverage. It's a huge wasted opportunity. Huge. Yeah, I I largely agree with that. I think that that there were a number of things that the Trump administration in many ways was able to play the bad guy, was able to play the boogeyman. And my administration never took advantage of that. Um, in addition to that, I would say that, I mean, there are some pretty basic elements. You know, I mentioned, you know, earlier in our conversation, this AMCIT office, American Citizen Office within within the International Organizations Bureau. They need to build that up. They actually need to use the database. They, have to, they actually need to recruit Americans to actually want to participate in the UN system and then help them get in positions of influence, right? We are not doing that. We need to put some real muscle behind our elections um, within, within international organizations. We're not doing that. And I think we need to rethink our playbook for, for how we proceed. I, I will note this administration has had some wins on personnel, but overall, we can, we can just be just doing so much better. I, w- I would largely say that this is just really a return to the status quo from the Obama um, and I separately, separately, I know this is this is not China related, but I mean, I know that, you know, our, our friends in Israel, Carrie, are really concerned about the sustainability of U.S. support within the U.S. system. I mean, we did just see the Biden administration veto U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. But I think there's a real concern that that support um, is, is, is not going to be sustained. Well, yeah, but, and we know why, because they, their la- one of the Obama administration's last act was to abstain was on a resolution. 20, yeah, 2, 2, 3, 4. And so, again, we had to come back and saw back a lot of ground. Um, yep. come, when when uh, Ambassador Haley and her team came in, it was not easy. And, again, if the administration changes, this kind of backing and forthing is not going to be useful to, to us, to either, you know, Republicans or Democrats who want us to play a role in international leadership. At the same time, I think that the Congress, there is very strong bipartisan concern about on, on the Israel and China um, issues at the UN. And I, I think we have to look at Congress to try to provide some you know guardrails and some discipline because they do control the financial um 
uh, purse strings and they can actually do that. And I'm, you know, not going to, I try not to date myself here, but I remember the, the, the very intense negotiations between Senator Helms and Secretary Albright um, to try to, to get some serious reforms in place at the UN. And the, Joe Biden, yeah, was and Joe, Joe Biden was very much it. He was he oversaw that, and Biden every man. exactly it was it was had his name on it, and there and those reforms did help for a while, but you know we've let things get flabby again in ways that are that are not in our interests, and I think that um, that's I, I think that's where we've got to look at that. You've got to have Congress holding the administration accountable for what we're spending at the United Nations. And uh, and what we're getting, you know, the the return on the dollar there, and and I think that that's really the only thing that's going to force a, a real change or any kind of discipline around this. Well, I I really appreciate both of you coming in and chatting with us today. This was very informative, not especially optimistic, but <laughs> but very informative. Um, so thank you both very much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having us. Of course, thank you to Vanderberg. Yes, and the Vanderberg. <laughs> Thank you for listening in on this series. We hope you found both today's episode and the series as a whole informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. If you missed any episodes, be sure to check out the rest. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.